Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We recognize the urgency of the situation, so our government is making more than $69 million available to implement a new approach to worker, contractor, and community transition. To do this, we are realigning our worker and community support programs and establishing capacity to ensure that workers have access to the services they need from training to work placement to early retirement. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Right, welcome to another podcast. That was the voice of Forest Minister Doug Donaldson announcing an assistance package for laid-off forest workers. And Rob Shaw, in last week's podcast, we talked about the B.C. government being slow here to help this battered forest industry in our province. And lo and behold, we get this uh, package out a few days later. you think they listened to the podcast? They got the idea from us or what? I, I think they did. We should be charging royalties <laughs> on our ideas here. I think, uh, uh, well, look, I mean, some of the stuff we were talking about the other week, how it's incredible that three, four months into this massive forestry crisis in BC where more than 100 mills have been shut down or curtailed or or had an impact on their business and thousands, um, more than 3,000 workers have potentially lost their jobs. Uh, that the NDP government had yet to come out with some type of aid plan for these workers. And so they did this week, Doug Donaldson, the forest minister who you heard there, and I think more importantly, Ravi Callon, who is the parliamentary secretary for forests and kind of this guy who was tapped in the last month or so to come in and tour the province and figure out what's going on. He was standing there uh, and they announced a $69 million aid package. Most of the money of that is probably going to go to this early retirement bridging program, which is essentially... If you found yourself out of work and you are within months or a few years of retirement, there's money available to help get you to that full retirement without uh, watching, you know, your career come to a close uh, and not being able to retire with the pension and the benefits that you thought you were going to get after so many years on the job. So that's a lot of the money. There's also short-term employment programs, fire prevention. Uh, We talked in the past about why not hire some of these people, put them out there doing the uh, brush clearing Uh, work that will prevent forest fires because there'll be less fuel or even helping with fighting forest fires. But it wasn't a very busy forest fire season this year. Uh, And then short-term assistance and job placement and that type of thing. I think a missing piece of this, despite the fact that it is is very late, some might say almost too late, um, is there's no money from Ottawa uh, and the federal government in this plan. And you heard Doug Donaldson in his press conference say, look, you know, Ottawa... And the companies have to step up and help us out here. And in the middle of a federal election, you might get some, maybe some promises from the federal leaders, but you're not going to get the bureaucracy moving on what BC wants, which is things like an expanded employment insurance program for people uh, to to get some type of you know financial assistance as well. And and that's not something that Ottawa can do with uh, without the politicians there. Yeah, I mean, so. you might think that in the middle of an election campaign might be a good time to pressure the feds to come to the table. But I think the time to do that 
would have been many weeks or even months ago. And if you take a look at some of the things that supporters of the industry had been looking for, some of which have been delivered in this package, like asking the feds to get involved, uh, transition dollars, wildfire mitigation strategies, some of the stuff that you just laid out there. That stuff was being asked for back in like June and July, you know? So here we are like four months later and they're coming to the table. So I think the time to be trying to engage the feds was a long time ago. Now, one of the talking points coming from the government on this is they realized, I think they've taken a hit on this, and they're saying that Doug Donaldson, the forest minister, was doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Mm. So I guess they want us to think that, well, he's been vigorously working without us knowing about it to help the, to help this industry. But I think there's a lot of political damage that's been done to the NDP on this one, I think. And I think the liberals look like they were ahead of the curve on it and asking for a lot of this stuff months ago. And remember, uh, a lot of these forest workers are employed, um, you know, and part of unions, uh, including the Steelworkers uh, Union, which was a huge campaign donor, as we said last week, uh, to the NDP in the provincial campaign. I was amazed that the Steelworkers stayed as silent as they did with all these job losses. And I guess it's probably because... Um, you know, some favors and markers called in by the NDP to just keep a lid on us. They gave a lot of money us. to the NDP yeah. before the last election. We're going to come up with something. Stick with us. Don't hammer us too hard. Yeah. Uh, the steelworkers came out and said thanks for the bailout plan that the NDP announced. But they threw in a line there that I, I thought was interesting, which was we need a longer term plan. And we also need some type of, of jobs uh, commissioner, job protection commissioner which I wasn't around in the 1990s, but I know you uh, were, uh, Mike, and remember the 1990s, mid-90s forest plan under Glenn Clark, um, which the Jobs and Timber Accord promised to create 40,000 forestry jobs, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, basically the only job that they created was a uh, Jobs and Timber Accord commissioner. And it reminded me a little (laughs) bit about going back to that idea, that somehow a commissioner is going to come in and solve the problems of the job losses in the forestry sector, been tried before, doesn't work, but there are the steel workers saying, hey, NDP, give it another shot. Well, I remember covering that, and one of the talking points of the Liberals back then was because the industry was very unhappy with this quote-unquote accord that was forced on them, so it was kind of a misnomer to call it an accord because there really wasn't much of an accord when major parties were unhappy about it. And the talking point from the liberals back then was no jobs, no accord. It it did not really work that well, the government intervention back then. And to be fair to the government, I mean, this is a tough hand they've been dealt here. I mean, they can take some of the steps that they outlined this week. But another thing that the liberals were calling for was, well, you should cut the stumpage rate that's charged by the government. This is effectively the amount of money that the government charges these timber companies to cut down trees on crown land or cut the carbon tax, which is another one that the liberals had called for, reduce the carbon tax on this industry, which may sound like, oh, that'd be a very effective measure and it probably would. But as the government has pointed out, it potentially triggers another trade complaint from the United States And we've already got plenty of that. I think another timing thing here is next week, we've got the uh, UBCM meetings going on, the Union of BC Municipalities. So you're going to have all the mayors and councillors from across the province all gathering in Vancouver, a lot of them from communities that have been battered by this downturn in this industry. And I think the government was knowing that they were being set up here to maybe take a pounding here at this meeting next week. So it it seemed like a bit of a rush job to get this out this week. And the only question, I guess, that remains now um, is 
what about Doug Donaldson? And and yeah. we have we have mused in the past about uh you know, here's a guy who is incredibly important to the NDP government because he represents a northern riding right. in a part of the province where the NDP basically have almost no MLAs. And so therefore, Doug Donaldson is his kind of key eyes and ears for John Horgan and the cabinet in the north. And But we have seen him struggle on several files, including forestry, um, the Caribou Protection Plan, which was launched uh, mm. near Prince George uh, and has turned into a massive boondoggle and the premiers had to intervene in that. And there have been a couple other things where you've sort of wondered, okay, and, and Doug Donaldson's a very bright, uh, friendly, intelligent guy. He was the forestry critic in yeah. opposition. He knows the file well. Yeah. But how many more kind of uh, passes does he get as this cabinet minister on on the portfolio that he has when it seems like he he needs a little help to do that job? They keep bringing in people to help him. Like, remember on the Caribou one, they brought in Blair Lextrom, the former liberal MLA, and then this one, they bring in uh, Ravi Kalon to, to help the guy out. So he does seem to be uh, – it's not a good look for him that – the premier's office seems to be kind of appointing people to help him on these major files. So I think it is a problem. And we've speculated on last week's podcast about whether he could be shuffled out of that portfolio. But I think you, I think you put your finger on something there. He's one of the, he's one of the, he's a key guy who represents like kind of one of the regions of the province where they're unrepresented. So he's maybe a type of guy you can't drop from cabinet. Well, and plus uh, I don't think John Horgan is super keen on a cabinet shuffle. Every time yeah. that comes up and every time, it's floated. He just sort of says he's happy with what he's got. And so um, I guess Doug Donaldson, in that sense, is is safe in the job. Uh, Smitty, a couple other things that were going on this week. You were taking a look at the ongoing issue of automobile insurance in the province and a, a very interesting uh, advertising campaign by the Move Up Union, which represents uh, many of the workers at ICBC, you know, the frontline kind of drivers, licensing, registration staff. Uh, what did you see in this campaign? What do you make of it? Yeah, this is a big union. They got like 6,000 employees over there at ICBC, a lot of them represented by this union. And this union right now can see the writing on the wall on the on the political debate going on about ICBC's future. Because you've got the opposition liberals here now openly musing about maybe it's time to break up this kind of government-run monopoly on your auto insurance and let's bring in private sector competition and make ICBC compete against private insurance companies for basic auto insurance in BC. This is something that the union at ICBC does not want to hear at all. They, 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 this would be a disaster for them if that happened or would certainly be very detrimental to them. So they've started an ad campaign. It's called Driving Public and it's designed to kind of get out ahead of this issue and try and get the message through to the public that in their view, Private auto insurance is bad, and they're buying ads, TV ads, radio ads. Let's have a little listen to one of the ads here. ICBC isn't perfect, but if we privatize car insurance, that means less coverage and high out-of-pocket costs. Claims are delayed and denied, and there are way more uninsured drivers on the road. Privatizing car insurance? That's a dangerous road to take. So what you heard there, Rob, was the pitch from this union stay away from private auto insurance. It's bad for you. This is the message they want to embed in the public's mind long before we get to another provincial election in which this could emerge as a big wedge issue between the Liberals and the NDP. Yeah, I guess it's worth keeping in mind that every time you hear someone wade into the debate over public and private auto insurance in British Columbia right now, they do not have 
the best interests of the average ordinary British Columbian driver at heart. And uh, whether you're the in private insurance sector, which is often out there saying, hey, you know, uh, we need private insurance in, in uh, British Columbia, or you're the union representing the ICBC workers, or you're the liberals trying to score political points off their own mismanagement of ICBC, or you're the New Democrats dealing with this incredible financial problem that's threatening their budget and trying to bring in caps and all sorts of other things. Nobody there is making this argument because it will actually produce the best impact on your rates. They're all making it for political reasons. And uh, you got to keep that in mind because otherwise you're, you're probably sitting here listening to this podcast wondering, I don't get it. How can everyone be so far apart? How can pu- public uh, insurance be the greatest thing ever and private insurance be the worst thing ever? How How is it? Well, it's because you, you're not really getting, you're only getting a sliver of the information. And we talked last week about uh, some of the impacts that private insurance is having in other provinces. And we were talking about Alberta. And yeah. Alberta had a cap on the rate increase that that uh, private insurers could raise rates in that province. And interestingly enough, that cap, which was brought in by the NDP Alberta government, expired. And the new government of Jason Kenney did not renew the cap. And so now the question is going to be in Alberta. And you see some of the coverage out there. Rates are going to go way up in Alberta to cover what the private insurance companies can say is rising costs right. and their ability to make money. And so that's what's going on in Alberta. New Brunswick, interestingly enough, is seeing rate increases in the double digits. There's one online auto insurer in New Brunswick who's private, who's going to increase rates an average of 50% next year because they're dealing with issues. It's not as simple as a monopoly government insurer versus the private sector competition. There's a ton of crazy factors that are going into this rate increase. There's a court case going on in Ontario too against private insurance companies where uh, opponents of the of the industry are saying that the private companies have been cutting people off of insurance if they're considered too high a risk without informing them and sort of leaving people high and dry. So there are a lot of kind of examples of other province where private insurance is not the kind of panacea that maybe supporters of it are are portraying. And you're going to hear a lot more of that as this fight heats up. And I think this is going to be a big, big battle here coming down the road. However, I think on the other side of it, there's a lot of arguments in favor of competition uh, and, uh, and making ICBC compete against private insurance companies. If you take a look at, for example, some of the products and services that are offered in other provinces that are actually really commonplace, but are not offered here in British Columbia. Like, for example, have you ever wondered why you can't renew your auto insurance online? Right. You got to go to an auto broker to do it. And I remember like when I go in to renew my auto insurance, it usually takes me like five minutes. You are, know? You, and are the, you renewing it on that James Bond supercar that you own or on, <laughs> a, on your family minivan? This would be the family minivan. Okay, all right. you're, you're talking about my midlife crisis there, my little uh, <laughs> MG. Yeah, I've, I've got some insurance on that. I usually just run it. It's running out right now because I only drive it in the summertime. When I go in, it's like, okay, here's the insur- here's the coverage you got now. Do you want the same coverage? Yes. Okay, print the documents. You're done. You know, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, why can't I just do this online? How come I gotta come well, into this office? It's like every other financial transaction in your life, practically, you can do online. And when you talk to ICBC about it, they say, well, you know, we're we're getting there. We may we may do that. We're studying it. And the private insurance companies have got a pretty strong talking point to come back and say, you guys have been saying that for years. And that's just one example. I mean, there's lots of other products and services that you can't get in BC. Another one is per kilometer insurance, which uh, basically sounds exactly like it says. It's 
basically charged by the kilometer. So the less you drive, the less you pay. And you can buy these products in other provinces. You can't buy that here. Another one is uh, family discounts. If you've got two or more vehicles, let's say your kids or your wife or your, your spouse has got a vehicle, maybe you got two or three vehicles in your family. Well, you can go to a, the insurance company and you can bundle them all and they give you a break. You know, they give you a deal. This is common in other provinces. You don't have that in British Columbia. You know, so there's lots of examples of that or products and services that are offered elsewhere. And what you're going to hear from the private insurance companies is, look, the reason that we don't have these things in British Columbia is because this is a state-run monopoly and they don't have to offer it to you because they don't have competitors breathing down their necks and offering these services and they're going to leave ICBC to buy it somewhere else. We don't have competition. So let's open up the competition. It's a pretty powerful argument that could resound and resonate with a lot of people. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, Rob, because I, I think it's going to be a big issue going down the road. Because well, I, I, I think Wilkins, I think liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson is looking at this and he's talking to people in this industry and he's saying, you know what, maybe this could work for us. I think it's true, you know, that argument that ICBC doesn't do these things because there's no competition. And why it's kind of yeah. like BC Ferries, you know, and for many years you've always wondered, well, how come I why am I paying money to get a reservation on BC Ferries? Isn't it better for them to know that I'm coming? It's taken years for them to shift around their way of thinking. When you have a state-run monopoly in charge, innovation is the first thing that goes out the door, right? right. So I think there's a great point there on it. Uh, the problem politically is how do you how, if you're the liberals, how do you run on a plan to privatize ICBC? Uh, or to allow private companies to come in if you can't assure them that your rates are going to go down. And we've seen the NDP land in the same glue where they said the changes they were going to make over the last year were going to lower your rates. And as we are discovering now, when people go renew their auto insurance, your rates are not going down. Your rates are going up, and they're going to go up again next year, and they're going to go up the year after that. So how, politically, Smitty, how do you think the Liberals make an actual promise on this without kind of landing themselves in even further glue. Well, that's why I think that's a great point. And it's one of the th reasons that every time I talk to Wilkinson about this, I try to pin him down and say, okay, I hear your complaints about ICBC and you like the idea of, of private sector competition. What exactly, what precisely are you? would you do if the liberals did form government again? Lay it out for me. How would it work? And he doesn't have the answer to that. It's like trying to pin Jello to the wall here. Now they do say, "Don't worry." As we get closer to an election, we're going to lay we're going to lay out in detail what this plan will be. But what I'm kind of sensitive to and watching for is: do they try to fudge this in any way, or just try to, you know, give you a bunch of political talking points on it that sound great, but without any firm, clear? deliverables that people can weigh and assess and say, is this a good thing? So I, I talked to um, one of the, uh, the liberal MLAs the other day who's a critic on the file, the guy from Kamloops. What's his name? Peter Millibar. Millibar. So, uh, you know, I said to him, because he was giving me the usual runaround on it, what they're going to do. And I said, look, don't you think the people of BC deserve to know exactly what you guys would do if you form government? And he goes, yes, I do. And they go, are you going to lay this out very clearly for people before an election? And he pretty much he said, yes, you know, we people deserve to know exactly what we're going to do. And this is no different. And I was like, save that quote. I got to <laughs> save that tape, because what I'm fearful of is we get in a big fight about this and we get into an election and this becomes a wedge issue and the liberals start being fuzzy or evasive on exactly what they would do. And here's the other unpopular thing. If you remove the politics out of it, you could probably make an argument that rates need to go up at ICBC 
They need to go up at BC Hydro. Money. They need to go up at BC Ferries because the cost of running those services, in, you know, creating the Site C Dam, improving all of the old dams, building new ferry terminals, you know, dealing with the lawyers and the more expensive cars just mean that you have to pay more. And the problem we have in politics is that all the politicians don't want to say that and they really don't want to admit that. So you have what the previous liberal government did, which is artificially pretend that rates can go down, yeah. hold them, suspend them, freeze them, take the optional capital, empty the piggy bank, make it look like you're managing this thing in a sustainable way. And then one day the chickens come home to roost and the thing blows up in your face and you realize it's near insolvency, which is ICBC's problem right now. So the politics of it, especially at election, you'll hear all the politicians tell you, we due to our incredible management, can keep your rates on topic X down. And what they're simply actually going to do is artificially keep them low while, the, while whatever agency goes slowly bankrupt and hemorrhages money until it blows up in the I, next party's face. I think that's why another very distinct possibility here is nothing changes. Right. And ICBC remains uh, the, the monopoly that it is right now, even under a liberal government, because you start getting deja vu on this kind of stuff. Because I remember when the NDP were in power in the 1990s, to go back to the 90s again, and the liberals were again kind of suggesting the same thing. Maybe it's time to break up ICBC. They got into power. They didn't do a darn thing. They backed right down. They were in power for 16 years and didn't touch it. Now here they are talking about it again. It's a bit of a third rail in BC politics monkeying around with car, car insurance. So there's a lot of talk going on. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Also speaking of a lot of talk, yeah. uh, Andrew, <laughs> uh, Andrew Weaver, the BC Green leader, uh, has uh, announced that he has labyrinthitis, which I didn't uh, I didn't know was a thing, but it sounds very debilitating. Uh, he's talking about symptoms uh, that suddenly appeared while he was about to give a speech to the Canadian Propane Association in Langley on September 10th. He was taken to the hospital. There's uh, vertigo, dizziness, loss of balance, nausea, and even some temporary loss of hearing that can go on for uh, a few weeks. So he didn't, had, feel, didn't some of his MLAs feel the same way when they were talking about doing a uh, deal with the liberals. That's right. Then maybe they also had labyrinthitis. I don't know. I, mean, I might have been liberal. <laughs> I shouldn't make light of it because it was. It sounds like it was a serious thing. But thank goodness, it sounds like he's going to f- have a full recovery. Here. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. briefly uh, chatted with him, and he's uh, he's certainly on the road to a full recovery, which is good. But it does mean for the Greens who are perpetually overworked, and and you know we do sympathize with three Green MLAs who hold the balance of power in this legislature, sitting on all the committees, have to respond to every bill, do the work of the Liberal opposition with a fraction of the people. Now it's just down to Sonia Furstenau and Adam Olson basically by themselves while Andrew Weaver recovers. For the How long is this going to take for him to get back? It's talking here. about three weeks or so. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and the good the good side for the Greens will be that Weaver is back before the fall session of the legislature. Right. But it does put a lot more stress on that uh, caucus and... Uh, you know, the the balance that the Greens have, the way they hold the NDP to account through the confidence and supply agreements uh, requires kind of, you know, Weaver to be a heavy presence. And uh, it'll mean a, a kind of a little pause, I think, here on maybe some of the political back and forth between the, the NDP and Greens until Weaver recovers. Well, with such a tight standings in the House with the, the very slim majority that the NDP enjoy here with the their Green partners, it just drives home again that... Anything can happen, right? I mean, this government has lasted two years, but things are tight. Like if someone gets sick, you know, hope yep. they don't. Hope everybody stays healthy and everybody's here. But you never know. With with a, a group this size, if someone gets sick, it can it can quickly unbalance things in the House, too. And we also have uh, liberal 
former liberal MLA Ben Stewart, who will be coming back this fall as an independent because he stepped out of liberal caucus uh, over some issues with elections BC and some yeah. donations and uh, things involving a constituency assistant. So, you know, uh, there's no doubt that Ben Stewart is going to vote with the liberals, but it does throw a little tiny bit of uncertainty into the political landscape, depending on just one or two people who can't make it in the legislature. So anyways, we know Andrew Weaver listens to this podcast and uh, wish him well with his health Absolutely, and uh, yeah. hope he recovers and yeah. uh, can come back and give us some great quotes that we can uh, we can put on the podcast. We will come back next week for the latest in uh, BC politics. Make sure you subscribe on uh, the Apple podcast, Google Stitcher, follow Mike Smith and myself on Twitter, and uh, we will see you next week. See you then.